And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. I was baptized at uh, Sacred Heart Parish in New Haven, Connecticut, back in 1951. And uh, after a long journey, returned to the Catholic Church in 1992. But something I noticed at that time was that, well, things had changed a bit. Some of the devotions that had been uh, important when I was a kid growing up, devotion uh, to the Blessed Mother, for instance, and uh, all the the multitude of uh, devotional associations with uh, the Blessed Virgin, were less emphasized. Uh, devotion to the Sacred Heart was less emphasized. And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought, but as time went on, these questions became more more interesting and more well-defined. Has devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus become outdated is a question you can ask yourself. So we hear a lot now about the divine mercy, for instance. Has divine mercy somehow replaced devotion to the Sacred Heart? Well, years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, who's president of Christendom College and author of Heart of the Redeemer, which was a an outstanding book that takes seriously devotion to the Sacred Heart, but grounds it in the uh, uh, the long tradition of devotion to Jesus. And recently, that book has been reissued, uh, revised, and updated. And I'm delighted to have with me right now Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, president of Christendom College and author of Heart of the Redeemer an apologia for the contemporary and perennial value of devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And uh, Dr. O'Donnell, good to have you back here. Thanks. Al, it's great to be with you, as always. Well, this, I want to come back to this, because I just, I like to work out of my own experience a bit here. And is it true, or was I just ignorant, that when I returned to the Church in 1992, that devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus was much less prominent than it would have been when I was growing up in the 50s and early 60s. No, I think that's absolutely true. Your instincts are right. And I think we witnessed a very sort of tragic thing that after the Second Vatican Council, despite what the Council actually taught, mm -hmm. there was a real weakening of, in many, many ways of popular devotions. Even though the Council itself highly recommended popular devotions of the Christian people, especially when they were ordered by the Apostolic See. Mm -hmm. And of course, Sacred Heart devotion is one of those. There, there was a sense that um, these things somehow had taken away from the, you know, liturgical devotion and things like that. And so they were seen almost as if they were in some way competition. Now, it's true that the Eucharist is, of course, the source and the summit of the Christian life, right. but it does not exhaust the Christian right. life. And when you look, and this is something that really struck me when I was doing my, my research in Rome and all of this, all of the popes, from Leo XIII all the way down, even to Pope Francis today, have constantly spoken of this devotion, its timeliness, and how urgent it is. And I think part of the problem sometimes is that people will try to reduce the devotion as if it's simply a, a set of pious practices. Right. Now, the pious practices, such as First Friday and Holy Hour, those are all very good things. 
and should be fully supported, and the faithful should be encouraged and exhorted to, you know, to participate in all of those things. But the devotion itself can manifest itself in many, many different ways. You had mentioned divine mercy. Mm-hmm. That certainly is a deep part of this devotion, mm-hmm. certainly a development of this devotion. But fortunately, I think particularly because of the pontificate of St. John Paul II, so many of these devotions that were really sort of the lifeblood of the Church in many, many ways were brought back. I mean, we all know very much his strong devotion to the Blessed Mother. Right. Turos is his motto. Yes. But this pope gave more addresses on devotion to the Sacred Heart than any other pope in history. Wow. He had visited Parele Magnol, the site of Margaret Mary's apparitions, on at least two occasions, every June. But throughout his, in his encyclical writing, etc., even the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that's why I felt in a certain sense there needed to be an updated and more expanded version of this book to show its timeliness and how it is deeply grounded in Scripture, patristics, and the whole Mm -hmm. spiritual history of our Catholic tradition. Well, let let me ask you a basic question here uh, about devotion. What does the Church mean by devotion? Well, that is a great question. Probably whenever there's a a question in terms of a definition, it's always great to look back to St. Thomas Aquinas, because (laughs) he's so clear. And St. Thomas, who's our universal doctor, defines devotion as having a ready willingness to give oneself to what concerns the service of God. So basically, to have devotion, it's an orientation of the will. In other words, we love our Lord, or we love the Blessed Mother, whatever it might be, and so we want to give ourselves to our Lord. Mm-hmm. We want to love Him in return. So having devotion to the heart of Christ, since the heart of our Lord symbolizes what Pius XII called His threefold love, His divine love, also the love that was infused in His human soul, but also that beautiful human love, that He loved us with emotion and with, with sensibility and things like that. That's what we're talking about having devotion to, because we realize we have been loved, and so we desire to love back in return. Turn. And so having devotion is that giving of our will, it's giving of our heart back to the one who has already shown how much he has loved us. So then devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus isn't, doesn't sound like it's something we add on um, to devotion to Jesus himself. I mean, it, it flows naturally from yeah. who he is and what he's accomplished. And what's the relationship then of his wounded heart in all of this, literally? Well, the veneration of the wounded heart goes all the way back. I think it's deeply embedded in Scripture. Uh, If you look particularly at the Gospel of St. John, John is the only one who mentions the piercing of the Lord's side, or the Mm -hmm. opening of his side, and the gushing out of the blood and water. And Christians, from the very beginning, when they would look at the wounds of our Lord, the wounds in his hands, his feet, the crown of thorns, but in a special way, the wound of the side, which were that, that spear pierced the heart and opened the heart also, and you had that gushing forth of blood and water. It had such a profound impact on John. Remember in his Gospel in chapter 19, he says, He who has seen it has borne witness, and his witness is right. true. And he knows that he tells the truth. Then he goes on to give two scriptural passages, you know, not a bone of them shall they break, and they shall look upon him whom they pierce. But this had a huge impact. And so many, many Christians, when they would look at our Lord, particularly in his suffering, saw the wounds as symbols of his love. And so it was very natural, since the heart is 
generally understood in virtually every culture worldwide as the center of the human person, the center of the emotional life. And in Semitic thought, it signifies the entire interior life of the person, his intellect, his emotional life, his will, all of those things. When they saw that that pierced, wounded heart through the spear thrust through the open side, they connected that wound with a symbol of his love. Hmm. And since St. John refers specifically and says, God is love, that image of that wounded heart, which, which reveals the incredible love that he has for us, became the great symbol of who he is. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our King. And so that's one of the reasons why down through the ages, it just got deeper and deeper and deeper. Yes, that makes sense. So, I mean, I want to restate again, then, this devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus is not just a set of optional uh, pious practices, uh, Mm -hmm. but is, in fact, an essential element of the Christian life. So there's no getting away from it. Yeah, and that's why it's given such an incredible role in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. That's what we add in the book. Not only in the spirituality section, where they spend a long time talking about what the heart signified, you know, in Semitic thought, uh, but also in the dogmatic section, where it talks about devotion to the heart of Jesus. Uh, Pius XI said it's the the sum total of the mystery of our religion. So in a very real sense, since our our religious faith focuses upon Christ— that divine person who became incarnate, and that he is the way in which we approach the mystery of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The devotion is so Christocentric, yet at the same time Trinitarian. It really captures so much of the truth of our faith, that it's not just a, you know, a pious devotion, and right. that's why the Church has given it such an extraordinary position in the life of the Church, liturgically, the whole month of June devoted to the Sacred Heart, that there is a solemnity of the Sacred Heart. Now you also have Divine Mercy Sunday, you know, and the feast day of Margaret Mary and St. Claude Colombier. So it's just part of the air that we breathe now. You know, it it just seems to me that this this is actually a, a should be an, a a good ecumenical devotional practice. Oh, I agree. If if see part of the problem, I think the way in which it there was a certain sense where everyone said what began with Margaret Mary. Now Margaret Mary is very important in the history of the devotion and did a great deal to popularize it. But if we go back, we recognize that the fathers of the church, particularly in their commentaries on sacred scripture, whether they're dealing with John's gospel or the gospel of Matthew or commentaries in St. Paul, or of course so many of the fathers and other mystics commented on the Song of Songs or the Mm -hmm. Canticle of Canticles, Mm -hmm. and there is this rich and beautiful imagery. It goes right back to the scripture itself. Even Martin Luther had a devotion to the heart of Jesus. Interesting. Because in a very real, in a very real sense, the heart is the person. It refers to the core of the person, not just the organ, although the wounded organ as a symbol is very, very important. And we don't want to forget the reality that, you know, as that sacred heart was beating on the cross, and the blood was pouring out from those wounds in his hands and his feet and from the the scourging and the crowning of the thorns, that blood actually gives us our redemption because it's the blood of the God-man, and that's something we don't yeah. want to forget about. Yeah. So in a certain sense, yes, it is something where there can be a great ecumenical outreach where all Christians yeah. who love Jesus can rally around this concept of the heart of the God-man. And, you know, that beautiful expression that Cardinal Newman used to use all the time in his motto, heart speaks to heart. That's <laughs> right. what we find in sacred scripture. It's sort of a key that opens the scriptures to us. 
in some ways. Tell us, tell us if you would, about the circumstances surrounding uh, the uh, disclosure to Margaret Mary. Well, it was it was an amazing thing. There had already been numerous images of the heart of Jesus. It was very common, you know, to show crucifixes with our Lord's side pierced and angels capturing the blood and water. But when you get to Margaret Mary, the the, the importance of Margaret Mary is she had a mission that was and a revelation that was not just for herself. It was a mission that was meant to be communicated to the entire world, and her spiritual director, St. Claude Colombier, understood that and did what he could to promote it as well. But she had a series of incredible revelations, all of them which took place in a Eucharistic setting while she was praying with the Blessed Sacrament exposed. Dr. O'Donnell, hold it there. We'll come back on the other side of the break and pick it up from there. I don't want to cut this off. Uh, My guest, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, is the uh, author of Heart of the Redeemer, an apologia for the contemporary and perennial value of devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. We'll be back. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell, President of Christendom College. We're discussing the Sacred Heart of Jesus. He's author of Heart of the Redeemer, an apologia for the contemporary perennial value and perennial value of devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. This is a, a revised, updated edition of the book. And we were talking about, in particular, the, uh, the uh, revelation of the Sacred Heart to Sister Margaret Mary. Many people make the mistake of thinking that's where the devotion of the Sacred Heart begins. It doesn't. It, it goes all the way back to Scripture. But uh, you were setting up the circumstances under which uh, this uh, revelation, private revelation was received. So please continue. Yeah, so St. Margaret Mary, she entered the Visitation Convent in Pareli Manial, which is a beautiful spot, very, very quiet, very peaceful. And it was in this setting while she was praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament on a number of significant feast days. This first great one was when it was the Feast of St. John the Apostle. That's why in many ways it's thought that, you know, the actual devotion is of Joannine origin. It goes back to St. John himself. Mm-hmm. But while she's praying, our Lord appeared to her, and it was a strike image, very reminiscent of the type of thing we see with St. Faustina as well, where our Lord appeared to her and she said that his five wounds were shining like five suns, just Hmm. radiating this light. But she particularly focused upon his bosom, where there was like this, this inferno of just flames of love. And then he revealed his heart, pointed to it explicitly as the means by which the the lack of charity in that time was going to be rekindled. And he said, Behold this heart, which is so deeply in love of men, Mm. that it has spent itself utterly. And yet it complained, our Lord complained, yet all it receives back is coldness, indifference, ingratitude. And then our Lord said, What hurts him most is that souls specially consecrated to him treat him in this way. And so our Lord asked that Margaret Mary make reparation, and in a spirit make reparation, make up for this lack of love. And so this was something, for many, many souls that love our Lord, really resonated very, very deeply with them. And so she began to talk about the merciful love of God, and that Jesus through the image of his heart, wants to communicate and bestow merciful love and that heavenly fire of charity. 
And so it was meant to be a flame that was to enkindle and be spread throughout the world. So she was given this special, special mission uh, and was also told that there, she would receive assistance, that he was going to send a spiritual director to her, someone whom he described as his perfect friend. Hmm. I mean, what a, what a way to be described <laughs> by our Lord. And that was St. Claude, this very, very holy Jesuit, yeah. who was actually canonized by uh, St. John Paul II. I was actually in St. Peter's Basilica the day that that actually really? happened. It was a beautiful, wow. beautiful ceremony. But St. Claude confirmed that you're on the right path, Margaret Mary, and did what he could to communicate, and eventually the community began to celebrate uh, the devotion. And then from the time of Margaret Mary on, it spread like wildfire. Father Crochet, another Jesuit, wrote a beautiful book on devotion to the Sacred Heart. And actually, it was the Polish bishops that first requested back in the 18th century that the devotion have a special feast day and a solemnity. And as it continued to make progress, everything that our Lord asked of her, whether it was the nine first Fridays or a special feast day in honor of his heart of love within the octave of Corpus Christi, uh, and then the, the idea of the practice of the holy hour on Thursday to be united with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Church has approved all of these and blessed them, and of course with the canonization of Margaret Mary and having examined her writings, even though it's a private revelation, this revelation, because of its liturgical uh, standing and also because of the doctrinal soundness right. of the devotion, has been given an incredible place uh, in the life of the Church and in the life of the faithful. Back when we were talking about the 1950s, it was almost like a triumph. There wasn't a Catholic Church you could go to anywhere in the world where there wouldn't be a statue of the Sacred Heart yeah. or a Lord pointing to his heart <laughs> in, in some fashion. And after a, a, a certain eclipse or a a sort of uh, moving away from that in the year, the chaos immediately preceding Vatican II. I think the true teaching of the Council and the teachings of the popes, including Benedict and Pope Francis, have now made it abundantly clear this is part of the permanent patrimony yeah. of Christianity. Yeah. Yes, I think this is what I discovered in reading your book, and that is that the veneration of our Lord's heart uh, is really the honoring of Christ and itself is the source and substance of our redemption. And I think that is something that I never understood when I was a kid, but uh, it makes a sen tremendous sense to me today. Yeah. You were attracted. Really symbolizes the core of the person. Yeah. And so when you get to the core of our Lord's person, we find an abyss of love and mercy. But every other virtue, that's why one of the great ways to practice is the, the praying of the litany of the Sacred Heart, mm -hmm. which was approved by Leo XIII, which is still very, very popular. But it focuses again in that deeper sense of the heart not just as an organ, which is significant in itself and as a symbol, but as the heart of the core of the person. In the yeah. core we find the abyss of all virtues, burning furnace of charity, true God and true man. You know, mm -hmm. all of those things that we find in the litany communicate in a beautiful way the theological richness of this devotion. Now, did you have a devotion uh, to the Sacred Heart as, when you were a little kid? 
Well, I did as a kid. I have to say that I went to Catholic grammar school, and I have to really thank the good nuns. I had the BVM nuns and also Sisters of the Holy Name, mm-hmm. and they always would, you know, would speak about the devotion of the Sacred Heart. And I found myself when I would see statues of the Sacred Heart in the parish, sort of where he was sort of kingly and pointing to his heart, it really did resonate to me. And even though I didn't fully understand, there was a power in the symbol that Jesus yeah. was saying some way he loved me. So I remember when I heard about the Nine First Fridays, I'll never forget, it was in seventh grade, I rode my bike <laughs> to, the, to St. Felicitas and Perpetua Church, and I did it for the Nine First Fridays, wow. I first made the Nine First Fridays as a seventh grader. So it was always with me, but I, it was more just sort of like, a, you know, an emotional attachment. I never really began to probe the depth of the devotion till I was a graduate student over in Rome, and uh, fortunately at the Angelicum University, the Dominican Fathers, it was funded by the Institute of the Heart of Jesus, had a special theology course on that. Wow. And in that course, they mentioned all of these writings that these different popes had done, and I had never heard of any of these papal <laughs> writings. And so I resolved that semester to read every one of them. And as I did that, I came to see oh my gosh, this is, so, this is a key to Scripture, this is a key to spirituality, it's a key to patristics, it's a key, it's a key to understanding yep. the whole development of Catholic spirituality. And in a very real sense, it is a great answer to the spiritual needs of our time. And that's what the popes were saying. And so that's when I resolved that, boy, I, and you know, Pius XII said he urged theologians to study the primary and lofty nature of this devotion. And I knew of books that were devotional, but not a lot that really dealt with it theologically. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said, this is a lacuna here, and if I could make some contribution, I'd love to do it. And so that's what I did. And you certainly have contributed. This is, it's really, I love this kind of devotional uh, focus because it's, it's, it's rendered very uh, rich and meaty uh, by the theological undergirding of it. And I thank you so much, uh, Dr. O'Donnell, for being with me again. For all your work at Christendom College, certainly, and uh, for this particular work, uh, Heart of the Redeemer. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Al. It's great to be with you. Again, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell is president of Christendom College. This is, you know, if I had to recommend, <laughs> this is the book on the sacred heart of Jesus. There's really nothing, I haven't seen anything comparable to it. It has, of course, a great devotional fire to it, but it also has the depth of uh, uh, the tradition, uh, the history, papal documents rooted in Scripture, and I recommend it to you. Again, it's called Heart of the Redeemer. It's been newly revised. Ignatius Press has now published it, so uh, it's easy to get a hold of. You know, we didn't spend a lot of time on the relationship between Sacred Heart and Eucharist, but uh, it's clearly there uh, in the book, and I think it's important because the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, and the reason for that is because Christ is the heart of the Eucharist. Eucharist is—I love the term because it goes back to the Greek, which means really basically give thanks. And it's the deepest mystery, of course, of the, uh, the, the, the Catholic sacraments, but it is rooted in something very simple all the way back to creation— and the capacity for the human person to give thanks. By its very nature, that implies that there's somebody, or something at least, to give thanks to. 
there's a recipient. Thank you, you're saying to somebody. From that feature of human consciousness, that feature of this basic humanity, the Catholic Church has traced a tremendous salvation history and climaxing in the great thanksgiving, the sacramental thanksgiving, the presentation of he for whom we give thanks, Jesus the Christ, in the sacrament of the Eucharist. It's really quite remarkable when you think, in some ways, giving thanks is such a humble, natural, and oftentimes expected thing. We expect people to give thanks. But in the, uh, again, because of the work of the Holy Spirit leading the church into all truth, and the Holy Spirit, of course, uh, governing, uh, administering salvation history, which takes us through the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, right? Uh, the seating, and then the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This takes us all the way to the Catholic Church that we encounter in space and in time today. Every Mass is a representation of what happened historically uh, on Calvary. So the mystery of the Sacred Heart and the mystery of the Eucharist are clearly connected here. And uh, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell does make that clear in the book. And again, if for those of you who may be unfamiliar with this idea, look, the Eucharist goes right back, of course, to Jesus' uh, institution of the sacrament in the Gospels. Uh, St. Paul deals with it at length as well. Immediately uh, after the Twelve die off and, and St. Paul dies off, you've got the Eucharist still central to the early church. Uh, you've got uh, St. Justin, uh, one of the earliest apologists, talks about the secret of the Christian liturgy, by which he means the Eucharist. You've got St. Ignatius that talks about the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. The Catholic Church has always been centrally a Eucharistic faith. I'm Al Cresta. 